Welcome to Pacific Northwest Coffee and Conversation, a bi-weekly podcast where we speak with leaders in the Pacific Northwest fighting hate and advancing social justice. I'm Mary Cyphers, Regional Director of ADL Pacific Northwest. In this episode, I have the joy of speaking with Dan Prinzing, Executive Director of the Watson Center for Human Rights based in Boise, Idaho. Welcome, Dan, to today's show. Let's get started. So let's get started. Tell us a little bit more about you and your personal journey. I'd love to learn how you started working in education and social justice. And I was wondering when you were younger, were education and social issues something that you talked about with your family around the dinner table? And when did you first develop your passion for education? Well, that that is actually such a great question with it. The reality is anything and everything that I am doing today has nothing to do with the way I was raised. And if anything, it is a direct opposite of the way I was raised with it. I came out of a very strict evangelical family. Wow. And what had hit me so often growing up was how judgmental it was, how exclusive rather than inclusive To address your piece, even on education, my mother graduated from high school. My father graduated from the ninth grade. Education was something, but it was not necessarily a directive within the family. So I was the youngest of three children and the first in the family to actually go on into higher education. It was breaking out of the mold or the expectation of the way I had been raised. I always felt, though, that the moment I stepped into a university the world became much broader. Where I had been raised in such a black and white existence, in such a a definitive what is good and what is evil, that all of a sudden that gray zone opened up so much more opportunity and really the beauty within the world and that beauty that one finds within diversity and inclusion. And so if anything, uh, my own personal journey was more of embracing my own sense of what is social justice and really creating a career opportunity to put that into practice. So I've often said I've been so fortunate because I've never had a job. I've just been able to work my passions and it's been able to live and to operate within that sphere that has meant so much to me. Wow. That's really incredible. And of course speaks to the power of education to open one's own doors and minds and the minds of others, which I know you're so dedicated to doing. So long before your current role, which we'll get into a minute, I know that you were a public school teacher in the Boise School District. What was that experience like in terms of your journey towards education and in interacting with young people? And, and how did it mold and influence your work that you do today? Well, certainly very significant. I had almost 20 years in the public classroom before leaving the classroom and moving into the Idaho State Department of Education. I've often said at my core, at my heart, I am an educator. And it is really in that teaching and learning opportunity that really shapes a lot of who and what I am. And the opportunity to have worked with students I always taught ninth grade. That's in the Boise School District. It is still in a junior high setting, though it is technically the first year of high school. Mm-hmm. And just I always said on a day-to-day basis, you know, either they would keep me young or they would kill me young, and that could change day to day. But it was so invigorating just to 
if you could get that energy working with you to create the opportunities, to create the interest. I found what I became in the classroom was a storyteller. And it was through the stories that I could hook the interest in and that for whatever the length of the period, the classroom became the safe zone. And within the safety of that classroom, once we closed the door, we just embarked in the journey on the stories to learn about each other, to learn about our shared history. And it was really, uh, it was such, I guess in many respects, you think of it as a laboratory. I did know after 20 years, though, when an opportunity came uh, the State Department, that it was time for me to move on, that it was time for me to, to work in education in a different avenue, in a different arena. And it became a phenomenal opportunity to work with one of Idaho's best state chiefs, state superintendent of public construction, Dr. Marilyn Howard, was a phenomenal leader and to have had that chance to have worked in her administration. Well, it's it's certainly really interesting. I mean, having that classroom experience is so fundamental to understanding education strategy and how you make change at a broader level. And I would imagine, especially at that ninth grade level, when you're getting students who are so young and entering high school and curious and both have so much to learn about the world at such an influential, important time in their lives. Well, it was such a highlight too. For 12 spring breaks, 12 consecutive years, my wife and I took the students to Washington, D.C. and New York. We wanted them to see and experience something outside of their own neighborhood. We knew for many of them, for some, first time on an airplane, for most, first time on the East Coast, and just created that. And I loved it year after year, seeing something that I knew so well, but now each time seeing it through the students' eyes. And I still get students that will contact me today. I mean, we're talking decades later of what that experience meant or something that we did in the classroom or something that they learned. I often said that oftentimes with education, we operate with the aha effect. Maybe it didn't sink in today, but at some point that light bulb comes on and it's a Aha, that's what that was about. Okay, this makes sense now. And it certainly speaks to the power of educators to not only open the eyes of students within the class, but give them a taste for the broader world, which I think is one of the most beautiful pieces, especially when you're teaching high schoolers. So fast forwarding a little bit, after you spent some time at the Idaho Department of Education, I'd love to learn a little bit more about where you are today. And for those who aren't familiar with the Wasma Center, which is such an unbelievable organization doing important work in Idaho that we just admire so much within our ADL Pacific Northwest office. Could you tell us a little bit more about the Wasma Center's namesake, Bill Wasmith? What was his story and how did the Wasma Center originally develop in its early years? I'm going to have to get into a parallel story because we've got a couple of influences happening at the same time with it. So even when I was a classroom teacher, I was connected with the center. I had been a part of the center even before there was a center, and it dated back into the early 90s when we were planning for an exhibit on Anne Frank and the world to come to Boise as part of the curriculum team. In the years when I was at the State Department of Education, we actually crafted the first joint project between the center and the state, creating a K-12 human rights scope and sequence of lessons for the classroom. When Dr. Howard, the former state chief, retired from public office, I resigned and we both 
came to the center. She on the board of directors. And at that time, I was hired as the education center. And in all transparency, when I started with the organization, we were not the WASMA Center yet. And when I joined it, we were the Idaho Human Rights Education Center. In 2014, though, we really examined ourselves as an organization, really leaning into the fact that we recognize we are a center for human rights. It is the framework in which we operate. It is that framework that guides and shapes our programming that we do today. In going through the name change process, it was actually suggested to us, look at Bill Wasmuth. Bill was a very charismatic speaker, never afraid to step up and confront bigotry and discrimination. And as we learned from his lessons, that's when we reached out to, and there's a side story to Bill's story in time, he left the priesthood, married, moved to Seattle, started the Northwest Coalition for Hate Against Hate and Harassment. Ultimately, he passed away living in Ellensburg. We reached out to his widow and asked for the rights to the family name. And it was in 2014 that we became the Wasmuth Center for Human Rights, recognizing as one former Idaho governor had declared, Bill Wasmuth was a true Idaho human rights hero. It's what he had modeled, what he stood for. And that's what we try to stand for today. As I'll often tell a number of audiences, what did we learn from Bill? Well, sometimes when you are faced with evil, good has to stand up a little taller and get a little louder. And so from his example, we learn how to stand up, how to take action, and how to be that change agent within the community. It's such a beautiful and inspiring story and one that just resonates so strongly with me and I'm sure our listeners today as we confront so much unfortunate evil and, and hatred in our world today. So for those who've never visited Boise before, or perhaps the Idaho and Frank Human Rights Memorial, how do you describe the memorial and its significance in the community and, and even the wider state? So the Plasma Center is the builder and the home of the memorial. We were originally founded in 96 for the purpose of constructing a memorial to human rights in Idaho's capital city. I see the memorial as a place where we come to talk with one another, to reflect on the issues, not only historically, but what are those that we are confronting with today? We have over 80 quotes etched in the stone of the park. The water features, the bronze statue of Anne, the stainless statue of the other, depicting our programming on the spiral of injustice. All these points within the space that caused us to pause. But we've often recognized that that's not enough. There comes a point where I can think about, I can talk about, but at some point now, what am I gonna do about? And that's what we hope occurs within the that space, is that we begin to really see ourselves as an upstander within my own sphere of influence. You know, my greatest fear when students come that we give docent-led tours to over 10,000 students a year. Parks and Recreation estimates that 120,000 visitors come to the memorial each year. My fear is that visitors would walk away thinking, I cannot be a Gandhi or an MLK. That's just too heavy of a lift for me. And so I'm always coming back, no, but within our own sphere of influence. So I often share the story with it when one a notable human rights advocate was asked, how do you promote and protect human rights? She said, start with a friend. If we could impact those 
who are closest to us, then how would that begin to ripple out into a broader community? Once the memorial was dedicated to the public in 2002, that's when the center's work really shifted, no longer about building the memorial. Now it was being the educational arm of the memorial. And so how could we take its message into a broader arena beyond the physical site itself? So though we are responsible for all programming and resources on site, we're also off-site in classrooms, communities, and companies throughout the state of Idaho. And because of our online presence, we now reach national and international audiences. Wow, that's that's incredible. And what a trajectory in such a short amount of time. I guess it reminds me of Washington, D.C., like we were talking about before, those towering and in, in beautiful memorials in the way that it inspires people you know, from MLK to various presidents to really reflect on the meaning of democracy and and leadership. And I love that you believe so deeply and not just reflecting on what our values are, but how do we actually put them into reality? And I think it's such a real challenge that so many people and not only young people, but adults struggle with today. The, The problems of the world seem to be growing and so much more serious and interconnected. And I think it can often leave people really thirsting for change, but not knowing exactly how to make it happen. There is an old adage in uh, civics that democracy must be born in each new generation, that it is not a given, and that we have to engender it, that we have to foster and constantly engage. Well, I think that's equally we can say that about human rights that human rights must also be born in each new generation. Now, not the rights themselves, those are universal, those are inherent, those by virtue of our birth, but more the commitment to them, the commitment to protect and promote must be born within each generation where I begin to see and feel that value for what are human rights. And speaking a little bit more about how we start to not only understand those rights, but really put them out there and, and put them into effect, what's the Wasma Center's theory of change? You know, it really it goes back to our, our very beginning as an organization. And we saw within the memorial and a lot of our programming, the power of education and impacting youth. Certainly in our theory of change, it is to create an arena in which any issue or concept is translated into a face and a voice. It's about the people, because our theory is we have to begin to change hearts and minds. And to do so, if I thought, for instance, if I leave injustice just as an abstract concept, I disengaged from it. But if I see injustice through the lens of the impact on a person, the impact on personhood, And I begin to translate the events or the actions of injustice as to the actions or impact on an individual. Can I begin to identify more with the individual? Is that then the space that engenders a sense of empathy, a sense of compassion? There may be some that when they think of a human rights framework, it can be a very legal framework. We do have articulated rights. We've got the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 30 articles. A lot of our work, though, tends to come on the human rights 
dispositions or those values of respect and dignity, commitment to diversity and inclusion. That as I was recently having a discussion with the Boise police chief and I said, you know, we can talk about a legal framework, but if I don't personally value it, if I don't personally value those rights, the legal framework will never matter. That if I do not see in others the worth of the individual, human dignity, the value of diversity, if I don't value that, how can I ever then engage in a meaningful way with the others in my community? It's such a meaningful and foundational question in thinking about how we develop empathy and and an understanding for others. And especially in today's climate where it seems like there's so much disconnect among our communities and polarization has risen and, and so many ugly trends like hate and extremism. What's your vision for how Idahoans, how you can reach more people in the state and how you can really scale and grow your work to meet the challenges that we're facing today? Well, certainly uh, to that point, uh, we have been witnessing phenomenal growth within the work of the WASMA Center. And I think it speaks to both the value for the work being done, but also the necessity of the work. What we are recognizing now, this is our 25th year as an organization, that there is still work to be done. And that as long as there is work to be done in bringing a community together. You know, Idaho suffers from a terrible stain of hate. And for many years, we were viewed as a haven for hate, even more known for that rather than even our famous potatoes. And so how do we begin to reframe that discussion, reframe that reputation that, no, we are not that, that Idaho does not stand for hate, nor does it condone that we as a people come together. So oftentimes, as we have said, even in the tagline in our, the construction of our new office, that we stand as a beacon of hope, a beacon of light in times of darkness, that when these events happen, either locally, within state or nationally, we come back and we declare that is not who we are. But now it's the reminder, so then who are we? If we are not the agitators or the proponents of hate, then how are we the voice for good? And how do we begin to bring those forces to bear? And as I stated with the example of Bill Wasman, how do we begin to stand up a little taller and get a little louder with the voices of good? That the only way to combat evil is with good. That the only way to combat hate is to take a much more proactive stance in community building. And so that's where we see that as times of division, and certainly we're feeling it now, but now what can we do as a community to come together? Where can we come for those critical conversations and provide a safe space and a place of hope that this is not who we are and that there is something better out there? That's such a beautiful sentiment. And again, I feel like all of this comes back to we as individuals, but we as a community and how do we make change and how do we make an impact when times are challenging? And I know through my own work at ADL, the past couple of years have been so incredibly taxing 
on our team and the daily operations when there are just so many hate incidents and extremist related incidents proliferating all the time. And I know when I frequently speak to various groups, the the sheer enormity of it and the reality of it can be hard to stomach. And I do think a lot of times people might want to turn off because the problem just seems so big. But I also do feel like the silver lining in all of it is that we've seen more people dig down and identify their values and want to stand taller and want to stand up. And I've been wondering, have you also seen that in your work in Idaho? Have more people been reaching out to you to get involved in the community and to take a stand against intolerance? Well, let me take this in two pieces. Uh, You may recall last December that the memorial was vandalized with swastika stickers that were placed in several very poignant features within the space. And on the stickers, they came with a threat, we are everywhere. And that was a real gut punch, frankly, to the community, that how could such an open act of hate walk into this space? So how did the community respond? Well, I've often said, if the neo-Nazis have copyrighted the tagline, we are everywhere, we violated copyright because we took it and we flipped it. And we said, no, we are everywhere. That people of goodness are in fact everywhere. And that campaign was more than just a tagline. It showed up on billboards and banners and in yard signs that went statewide. So now what do I realize with it? When we say we are everywhere with compassion and justice and kindness and respect, in reality, no, that those are attributes that are not everywhere. But as I'll freely share, when I'm walking through a neighborhood or driving down the street and I see one of those yard signs, it tells me, yes, but it's there. It's in that house. And as I go, it's in that house, it's in that neighborhood. And I think that's where we are now, to your point with it, folks openly proclaiming, I am a voice for goodness. I am a voice for dignity. I'm a voice for respect with it. We've had so many folks come into the office to pick up one of the yard signs, and it's almost been comical with it because they'll say, oh, the house next door to me is up for sale. And as people come to look at it, we want them to see this is our neighborhood. This is what we believe in. So think about that if you're moving in here. In other words, people are physically putting their stake in the ground to proclaim who they are, their values, what they believe in. Now, also to your point, it's just been the reality in in the last 18 months in a capital campaign to build the new Wasma Center, the number of funders who have come to us and say, we want our name on the building. This is a building project. This is a $4 million project that's built on donor recognition. Exterior, interior, donor wall, where businesses, foundations, and individuals are saying, this is who I am. And I want my name carved in the stone because this is also my legacy. You know, in in our upstander programming, we use the acronym ASK, CHOOSE, TEACH, the the ACT Act. And the T, teach by example of how you live your life. It is what will your legacy be and how many folks now come into us and say, this is who I am. I want it carved in the stone. I want the community to recognize these are my values and I embrace the work of the Wasma Center. That's such a powerful story. And I wonder, do you coin yourself an optimist? I feel like you almost have to be in imagining a community or a state where 
there's more good than there is evil. There's more positive than there is negative. And it, it can be a challenge, I think, for many today is where, yes. you know, living our lives in this kind of 24-7 media era. And, and obviously, uh, the positive things don't always make the news. So how would you describe your own personality or or take on the world? Well, I do have to believe as we have carved in a large rock along a major thoroughfare in downtown Boise, that in spite of everything, I still believe that people are good at heart. Now, granted, Anne Frank wrote that line two weeks before she was rounded up and sent to the concentration camps. Would she continue to have echoed that line in the months to come? But that really speaks to the core of who I am, that I still believe in spite of everything, that people are good at heart. And that the voices of good are out there and we have to bring them together. Uh, You're very right. If I allowed myself to stay in the dark, to stay in the places in which so often our work goes, frankly, I don't know whether I could be able to handle it. I don't know if I could get up every morning to face it. But because I believe in my core that these acts of hate or the disagreement or the polarization is not at the core of who we are, that there has to be something better that we are building toward, that we are moving toward. I like to believe that is this just a wrinkle in time and that our better angels will materialize out of this, that what will we have learned out of this darkness? You know, what do we say? Yes, hate was emboldened. Violence was emboldened. But now I'm hoping that it's also a wake-up call to those of us who say, and this is wrong. For those people who are adults really thinking about how to identify injustice, but then what are the steps to take to correct it and to build a better community or society at large, where would you advise them to start? How do you advise adults to be upstanders? Yeah, we have a, a human rights certification program for the businesses. This is for the workforce. It's an online program, focuses on six modules or six themes, diversity, inclusion, ethics, civility, respect, and be an upstander in the workplace. So where does it start? It starts at the water cooler when someone uses the word or tells a joke. Now you have a choice. Are you going to say nothing? just fume inside and walk away, or are you going to address it? That's why in our upstander program, mean in that acronym ACT, the A is ask. Did you really mean to say that? Do you really know what that word means? In other words, can we start confronting within our own, as I said before, our limited spheres? You know, to your point or question there, after the murder of George Floyd, and we had so many folks coming to the center, and saying, what do I do in this moment? And is this just a moment or is this going to become the foundation of a movement? Because we've had a lot of moments in US history, but our movements have been slow to materialize and make change. What we recognize then as we articulate now, as upstanders, you and I don't have to do the same thing. After the murder of George Floyd, we saw many marching in the street. That was their thing. We saw many educating themselves. Just look at what we were on the bestseller list the summer after the murder of George Floyd. 
We saw many donating to the organizations doing the work and many who were having some pretty tough conversations at home. To me, those are each the actions of an upstander. What we recognized at the time, as we still do today, it's not that you and I do the same thing, it's that we each do something. And what we're finding is this is a season that we cannot do nothing. So I think for many folks, they're still trying to discover their thing. I had a great conversation with a young businessman in town, and he was really telling me, he was watching the marches in the street, and he said, Dan, he said, I just really don't feel like I'm doing enough. And I gave him pause. I said, wait a minute. You're raising four children. How are you raising them? They are our future. How are you preparing them to carry forth those values that you hold dear? How are you engendering within them their place within the community to make a difference? I said, that too is the act of an upstander. Start by convincing a friend. Start with those closest to us. And so that's what we've been spending a lot of time in our programming of the late. What are those actions? Right now we're finalizing a new brochure. When you hear it, when you see it, how do you confront anti-Semitism and racism? What do you do in the micro that in that moment, what do I do? And it's such an important reminder, especially as a parent myself of two very young ones, how this work starts early, but it's not only for us as adults or members of the broader community, as parents and as families, we all have that obligation. And I'm I'm constantly blown away, not only by the questions my four-year-old asks me about difference and race and religion and all sorts of curiosities that kids develop at a super young age, but the research out there that shows how kids as young as two start to identify difference and can notice otherness. And I just think it illustrates how even more important it is for parents to engage in that kind of thoughtful um, curiosity and do it in a way that really showcases and, and imprints the values of one's family on on the little people out there. And, and certainly your story about how you grew up around, you know, the dinner table and maybe the things you learned or didn't learn um, that influenced your life journey. Just it really impressed upon me the importance of us as parents engaging in these conversations, even when they can be really hard or we don't know the exact answers and that's okay. But doing that work and seeing ourselves as upstanders within the family unit is so crucial. We have a wonderful summer program. It's a uh, human rights for young listeners, a summer reading program for ages four to eight. And I love the titles of the books that the committee identifies that they share with the little ones in the summer reading sessions. There is such phenomenal young literature out there, the children's stories that really bring these concepts to heart. And if we as parents, or in my case, as grandparents, share these stories, you know, so at the height of the pandemic, when we could not physically get together, we shifted and put the stories all online where we had readers doing it so that parents could dial in every week. Here's another book. Here's another story with it. I know for many years, decades ago, I was a single parent, would have loved that opportunity so that I could have taken a break from the reading on the nightly basis and had a video that I could play there. But it's uh, wherever we can get the stories, wherever we can get the just to support 
because once again, it's like putting that yard sign out there in front of my house. I'm putting my stake in the ground. This is who we are. This is what we believe in. And you've talked a lot throughout our conversation about how you inspire other people to take action, to understand their own identity, to appreciate others, to be upstanders. But who inspires you? Do you have any role models in your work? Well, I have to go back to in a very personal and slash professional. It was Dr. Marilyn Howard. It was that state chief. Uh, She was a phenomenal leader. Her commitment to civics and human rights, her commitment to an international understanding. We started a number of initiatives when we were still at the State Department of Education, and she recognized very rapidly that when a new administration came in, a lot of these programs would go away. And that's why we both came to the Wasman Center to continue the work because we saw both the value and the necessity of doing so. She was my role model and she was a dear personal friend and we traveled internationally together in this work. Uh, We spent many an hours together with her, but what I learned from her on how to be a leader and how to engage in a community. Uh, She passed away a year and a half ago at the height of the pandemic and it's, it's left a hole. Because she was somebody who was always my go-to, that I could always count on that conversation. You know where I pull a lot of inspiration today with it? I can admit it here because nobody will be able to see me. I'm an old guy. I've been around a long time. with. I pull a lot of inspiration now for my grandchildren. As I'm watching, my youngest are 15, my oldest is 20. And I listen to them. And things that once perhaps were an issue... When I listen to them talk their non-issues, that gives me hope. You know, the the inclusion of the workplace, these ideas, these values in a very lived practical sense that maybe if there have been decades of fighting towards or movement toward, but for them, they just are. This just is how you live. That's got to be a place of hope to see, okay, it does make a difference. As I listen to their generation now, as they're stepping in to leadership positions. Well, you certainly seem like a very young grandfather to me. (laughs) (laughs) But I've only seen you over Zoom. (laughs) So to end on an uplifting note, I'd love to know what is one thing that's currently bringing you hope for a better Idaho or perhaps a better world? Of late, the outreach we have had from a number of organizations, number of civic leaders, not only reaching out about our programming, but engaging in the discussion for who do we really want to be as a community. And that just has to give me hope. That just is that when I have the police chief or the mayor or our faith leaders, and they all come together and echo this commitment to who and what we really want to be and that the acts of extremism or hate or the discord that we witness is not going to define us. And so what I appreciate in this moment, we are concertedly going to 
frame our own narrative. I'm not going to allow others to say who we are, what we believe in, or what we do. We will proclaim our own narrative. And as I said before, sometimes we just have to stand a little taller and get a little louder. But what we're recognizing now is we're not standing alone. Well, I want to thank you so much for such a rich and important conversation today. This was with Dan Prinsing, the executive director for the Wasmith Center for Human Rights. I appreciate you being the first guest on this podcast, but hopefully not the last. And thank you for all the amazing work you do. Thank you so much. 